and he sings. Very clearly, what he's saying there, paraphrase like this, given what we see in verses 29 and 30, what conclusions can we draw? What truths are inescapable given what we declare in verses 29 and 30? And that's a massive question, isn't it? And that question starts us right into the chapter. But as we look last time, in answering that question, he poses other rhetorical questions. And we looked at verse 4 last time. So we saw, uh, first of all, verse 31, uh, that no one can be affected against us in their attacks. They can attack us without question. But we can't be affected by those attacks, given what God has done to the Second conclusion of God, verse 32, is that since God is doing all of that for us, He certainly will give us everything we need to end up where He's forced to be in conjunction with Jesus Christ. So, in order to do anything against us, God will most certainly do anything necessary and give us everything necessary that we might get where He wants us to be. Verse 33, there is no possible no one can come to God the Father and say, Ah, oh, but that person has done that. And then the last one, the last one, verse 34, therefore there is no condemnation left. There's no condemnation left for him. Paul wants us to be sure of this, he wants us to be certain of this. That when I stand for God on judgment day, there will not be anything outstanding against him. So that's what we got to last time. Remember, we ended up by saying, well, that's not all, there's more to come. Which is really terrible. What is next to come? Two questions that are really one, which is the way in English that we use question marks there. It's one question. And really, the answer to that question is the answer to all of this. And it's simply how secure can we be in this question? How secure can we be in this? You know, is it just this lifetime? Is it just the good times? Is it just for some people? How secure, fundamentally, am I from the moment I put my trust in Christ? And that's what he answers in verses 35 and 36. Can anything separate from God's people? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we've been killed all the day long. We regard the sheep the slaughter. And Jesus here on earth, he made amazing promises to his followers. He made amazing promises to us who are Christians. One of them that he made is this, and this got him into so much trouble. When he said this, the Jew picked up stones and expressed purpose of stoning him to death. This is what he said, John 10. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My Father, my wife. And the response of the Lord, pick up stones, stone to death, please. He was claiming the quality of the Father, he was claiming that all those who were trusting the Father were trusting him, who were truly trusting the Father, and that the Father would keep them safe and he would keep them safe, eternally secure. And I sort of think that maybe that those words of Jesus were at the back of Paul's mind as he came to write these verses 35 and 36. Jesus made this amazing promise to the Christian. I'm holding you in my hand, the Father is holding you in his hand, and no one, no one can break that hand open and take you out of What does that look like in our lives? Because we are holding real. And that's what Paul tackles in this verses. He looks at the very things that come into our lives and says, can any of these break that love of God for us? Can any of these things take us out of God's hand? First week, unfortunately, there are those who want to set us There are those who seek to, there are those who try to. In the New Testament church, the early church, it was the Jewish authorities, it was uh, many of the Jewish people. And then it was the Romans and his persecution of priests, uh, so their lives were threatened more and more from Rome. For Christians today, it might be Islam, extremist Hinduism, in our land it tends to be far more subtle than these thoughts, things like, of course, secularism, atheism, the power of government seeking to reorientate us to a land that no longer recognizes God's law and honors God and what we believe. Pressure to back the gospel. The very real possibility of arrest and imprisonment for those that stand up against that, particularly if they honor God's law above man's law in our land. Years ago, that's almost the question of this person. We had nothing really to fear. I mean, so a few years ago, this was an ideal country to be a Christian. Churches are open, Bibles are available, there's no persecution, the law of the land was pretty much supporting the Bible, you were being taught Christianity in the schools, the, the media was supporting Christianity in the program. You read through Christianity and Wonder this, that was first a series of national radio broadcasts. Imagine it's like the BBC actually paid someone to give those as national broadcasts. No, they just become to real issue national Answer that question. Can we be honest for one moment with ourselves? I'll try to be honest with myself as I'm preparing this. If I truly believe that these things cannot possibly touch my relationship with Christ, if I believe these cannot in any way harm me ultimately, 
why am I so concerned that I shouldn't be persecuted? Why am I so concerned that I need to be careful how I say things, how I move in this world? For fear of what will come for us. Why do I have my life under a bush instead of setting it on a hill for everyone to see? If I truly believe nothing in all of this can touch my relationship with God, nothing can break his love towards me. And all that happens when the words of God might be is the love of God is Now I think if we're honest, we have to say however much I don't want there to be a visitation. However much I want to believe this is not touch me. Nevertheless, even if it's very persecuted, you've got that. Please don't say, I will treat my children as children. So, how do we get from where we are to where God wants us to be? Because the purpose of writing these verses is we won't be that. We would be confident, stand up and say, No, none of us can touch me. I know where I'm going, I know what God has done for me, I know where I am in Christ, I know. But I'm just going to go through this life, through death, into glory, and that's where my heart is, and that's where I'm focused. Now, I suggest to you what we need to do is to look at this list of all this. Just consider what it's saying. Be persuaded by God that these things cannot, cannot separate us in any degree God's love towards us. This What translates tribulation into the English comes from the Latin word, and the Latin word um, is a, a name that was given, a word that was used for an infant when they were threshing seed. And this infant put pressure down onto the seed to break it off, to separate it from the source. So the word literally means to have this pressure put down on it. Starts quite light and quite easy, and then this builds up, and you become more and more pressure with it, and you feel being crushed by the weight. Maybe it's your health. Who was some of your other people? Some of them are and I said, uh, I never used to think about doing it. But once I did, I just did it. And now I've told you this, and read it, and I'm like, I want to do that within quite some two or three days after. And it's a good way of doing it. 
And any of these things separate us from the love of God. And Paul's answer is emphatically no. It can't. In any way, damage our relationship with God and God's love towards you. This is second distress. And the word is translated is just literally two words put together. And the word literally means narrowness of room. You're getting funneled in. The walls are pressing in on either side. And the idea is probably that you're getting steered towards somewhere that you don't want to go. Out. You're 20 years old, you know exactly what you want to do after you retire. You've got it all mapped out. And it starts to change. You suddenly find yourself in a place where this wasn't where I really wanted to be. And I can see where it's heading, and I can see where it's taking me, but it wasn't where I really wanted to go. You know, maybe then it's relationships that are changing around you, and you find yourself not where you want to be, but you find that you're having to plan a different future to the one that you would have chosen, the one that you actually want. And it's as though this narrow unit of room has left you almost in some vision, saying, that's the rest of my life. I can't see any way of working with it. Is that going to damage your relationship with God? Absolutely not. Is that going to diminish God's love for you? No, it can't. Persecution, discouragement. I think we don't want to take this to deep uh, level of persecution, because otherwise we're going to have sex and we get further on than we missed. I think this further mind here is to say persecution. Just that practical persecution of friends ridiculing of being isolated in the workplace, of, of, of finding that you're being marginalized, maybe of finding you even or threatened with imprisonment. Something that on a world scale is not that great, but for us. Suddenly, when you're standing there like the uh, ashes bakers were, and I have gone outside the cold and incessantly going to the national, uh, I mean, I think it's an awesome speakers, and it's incessantly going to Christ in the way they've done. Am I standing there on the road doing it? Absolutely not. Christ is there with me. For whatever reason, whether it's local and weather wise, or whether it's financial wise, and I should see whether Imagine a brother or sister in Christ sitting there starving to death. They've not eaten for maybe three or four days, no prospect of eating, and they're sitting there to be brought dead. Does that mean Christ doesn't care for them anymore? Does that mean God's abandoned them? Absolutely not, says Paul. Not even that is separated from the love of God. Not 
Sorry, you moved outside of my life, you moved outside of my provision for you. 
right now. Absolutely not, says Paul. Even there. And there was anybody who wish to bring me to my presence with great rejoicing. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, let me just focus on two things that might help us get our minds and hearts to make our lives about what Paul's telling us in these verses. The first one is this Christ has already won. That's to say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. We're more than conquerors through Christ. Not you're more than conqueror on yourself. Not you. I mean, you're a fictional legend with your legs. You know, you know, you have your muscles. Be a man. He says, no, our confidence in being more than conquerors is that we're in Christ. Amazing custom known as Great Jesus. No one is able to step forward and undo this scroll. No one is able to break the seals. No one can bring back God's purpose and plans for redemptive history. Just weeping because what's going to happen now? Standing in the middle of the throne. 
Once was dead, now is alive forevermore. But there's the king, there's the important point. It bears the marks of crucifixion. And so we read then that the whole of heaven erupts with his praise. And what is the praise that is sung by the angels? Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. This is power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He conquered through death. When he was crucified on the cross, as the Jews were rejoicing that they got rid of this blaspheming Christ as they saw when Judas has betrayed him, when his friends have deserted him, Christ is like a spirit. One. Finish. Thank you. 
and when that opportunity is returned, whereas it is, that is our best country, that is our family. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be prepared for you, and he is prepared for you to sit in the future. All these great saints from the Old Testament, God has made these amazing promises to them, and they say, oh yeah, but that's not this kingdom. Oh yeah, but that's not this lifetime. And then instead of looking around them and seeing the problems, they're looking forward to the glory of God and saying, and when Christ comes, then we'll get the reward. God's not ashamed to be there for you. Come go down some verses further, verse 35. This is what we read. Some torture. And he said later that God's love made sense in this lifetime in that moment. Triad would die and then release and reunite him in God. Some torture, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to the next life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains in prison. They were stunned, they were sore and tomb, they were filled with a sword. He went about in skins and sheep's coats, cursing children and victims. But if God loves me, I shall have all sorts of wonderful blessings in this life. You will not have that as well. That is the lie. Now, in this life, we suffer the glory that we will be revealed with in the next. Christ is already coming. His kingdom is not of this world. We need to lift our eyes above this. We need to focus on what is yet to come. It's better than the world. Thirdly, his love is eternal. Let me quote this to the next verse, verses 13 and 39. So, this morning, I just want you to see this. Verse 37. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's in Christ because Christ is conquered, based on the fact that He has conquered us. It's reading the the author's reasoning from what a senior pastor said to him that what for many Christians is the greatest problem is to be fully persuaded that God loves them. Not that they love God, so they believe that. Not just convinced that God loves them. Not sure that God loves them. And he quotes Spurgeon, which of course Spurgeon is sort of like, you know, it's the nail on the head and um, it's just a few words with simplicity. And apparently, like, he wants to listen to it. You know, I love God, but I'm not sure God loves me. It's not supposed to say, so I know I love God, and I know what I'm like, therefore I know the love that I God has never come from me. But I know it comes from God who put it there, and there's no reason why God could put it there unless he loves me, therefore I know God loves me. Pretty good, isn't it? I know what I'm like, so I know that love never originated from me. Therefore it must have been God who put it there. Why did God put it there? 
So, 